Bruce Buffer. back to the Ones Ready Podcast. You're in the team room, Aaron and I. Uh, I gave you a little smoke yesterday. I'm not going to give you any smoke today. It's just way too early for that. <laughs> or is it? I don't know. It, yeah, I was, we'll was going to say it was right off the bat yesterday. I was like, hi, Aaron, you POS. What's going on, baby? <laughs> like, just kind of taking your place early. That way we can establish the tone. <laughs> nice. Um. So we talked about, we've already knocked out uh, the pararescue deep dive part one. Um, we just, there was, in my own opinion, uh, such good content and good conversation that I, I felt like we needed to break it up for a part two, just because there, there was a lot of data. Yeah. So we, we kind of, we hit a lot of the recruitment development, um, you know, SWIC, ANS, all the schools, kind of like the rest of the pipeline. And then we started getting into, so we, we ended getting into different assignments, SOCOM versus ACC and that kind of stuff. And now, so now that we've finished the pipeline, we're going to talk about what PJs do once they get to their first unit. So, yeah. Over to you, man. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll kind of open it up. We'll start with PJ here, but you know, we've covered all three of them at this point. So we've done deep dives on the entire uh, special reconnaissance pipeline, CCT pipeline. We just finished PJ. We've done TACP a whole bunch of times before. So we know exactly what the pipeline looks like now. So we'll kind of start with, you know, what your first year looks like in, in each AFSC and, and to keep it a little bit coherent here, we're going to knock out PJ first and we're going to talk about the rescue side of the house because we all live in AFSOC together, right? So, you know, you, you can speak to the CCT side of the house and we can both speak for Trent um, with SR and stuff. But as far as pararescue goes, you know, the name of the game in that first year is upgrade, right? So everybody's always like, oh, what's the, what's the day to day like? And you've heard the jokes about, you graduate the pipeline and you're back to the bottom of the totem pole and you know, you're a three level. We've talked about this before. So if you're doing your, if you're doing your research, each AFSC, so each job has skill levels associated with it. And it goes one, which is student, you know, you're a nothing. Uh, there's a three level that's an apprentice. When you graduate the pararescue pipeline, you graduate as a three level or as an apprentice. Basically what this means is you have to redo a lot of the things that you did in the pipeline for the first time. Now you have to do, with no oversight to an acceptable standard. There's something, there's a, there's a book that we use that has all of the standards that are no kidding. Like this is how you do them. And it's everything. It's here's how you shoot. Here's how you jump. Here's how you perform medicine. Here's how you do ropes. Here are the scenarios that we need to see you perform in. So there's even different stuff. So you're, you're going to do a ton of medicine, right? Cause medicine is, um, you know, one of the biggest food groups that we got, you got to, it's a perishable skill. You have to constantly rehack your medicine. Well, it's not good enough just to be like, okay, well, splint an arm or stick an IV. It's, okay, when you're flying, we have to see you on an aircraft do this. Or you have to perform a mass casualty as a, as a mass casualty leader. Uh, and it has to be in a tactical environment. Or it has to be in a non-tactical but on a mountain environment. So just apply that to everything. We have a huge skill set. Everybody out there knows. I think it's something like 259 separate line items you need to maintain currency in. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember the exact number. We used to say it all the time, but I, it's, it's a lot. It's over 200. I'll tell you that much. But you have to get trained on all of these things and you have essentially two years to do it. You have to go to get your next skill level. So it goes three level and then five level. That's not a lot of time, all things considered, especially when you show up to one of these units, when you're going to go to either Moody or DM, that's probably the most likely you're going to go to. So we're just going to pretend, you, let's pretend for the sake of argument that you went to Moody, you went to the 38th RQS. In that time, you're not the only person that showed up there. 
You're not the only person in. It's not like they wait until everybody's upgraded to five level before they get new students in. You're getting new students in every quarter. You know, three to four times a year, you're getting new crops of students in. So the main focus of really the 38th and the 48th, really any unit is almost always upgrade training. And it's almost always focused on you in that first year. So when you get there, the first thing that you do is you kind of like sign into the unit, you get yourself ready to go. They're going to give you time to find a house and give you time to get settled. And if you have a family, get your family settled. But as soon as you sign in, you're going to sit down with your supervisor and he's going to walk you through the upgrade process. And then it's off to the races. Um, there's really no set way that you go about this, but the team is already going to have a plan. So you're going to go through, we used to have green team way back in the day. We called it a bunch of different things. It was green team. Then it was IQT, you know, your initial qualification training, but there is a list, a very specific list that the career field has put out that you have to do before you can even go out and train. And it's called your MQT, your mission qualification training. There's a certain list and it's a cut down list, not the huge book of the everything that you need, but there's a cut down list. I think we've got it down under 40 items at this point of things that you have to do that we have to see you do before you're even allowed to go out and train. And it's stuff like you have to do a metal, medical eval. Like one of the first things that you have to do is under the guy, under the uh, watchful eye of the IDMTs, the docs and your supervisor, you have to run through a simulated patient treatment scenario. And we have to see you do that right away. Like before you can go out and train, before you can't go out and do anything, we need to see you treat somebody medically in a simulated environment. So the evaluation never stops. The, uh, the training never stops. Like you're never going to stop training to that next level. You're in, and it happens right away as soon as you get to the unit. Um, and then you're going to fall in on whatever, you know, deployment cycle it is that you're going to work on. It's a little bit, um, you know, there's a, a more formalized process on the ST side of the house, um, as far as what we call it and how, you know, the phases and, and whatever and rescue does it a little bit differently because they have different deployment requirements, but it depends on where you fall in there. So there's, you know, a couple of distinct possibilities. We try to, when we were at the schoolhouse, we, we would try to avoid sending brand new students to a team that was deployed because those brand new students get there and some, you just kind of like, look, it's like the John Travolta meme. You get there and you just kind of like, look around. This and is like, no reality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And like nobody's, nobody's home. Everybody's gone. You don't have a dad. You're, you're just like wondering what to do. And typically that leaves a problem. So we would try to make sure that the teams that were getting the most students were actually not deployed, not, not in that part of the cycle. Um, and you would do that by forecasting. Like, you know, when the teams are going to deploy, cause you're talking to the units constantly and you're like, Hey, when are you guys leaving? Okay. You're leaving in, I don't know, let's say that somebody's leaving in September going somewhere. So then that means like two classes before that in the January and the June graduation. Cause that's usually how it goes. January and June, you're getting them the three levels that they need. You're getting them the brand new students so that they're training up and then they can maybe hit that deployment. That's another frequently asked question we get is, you know, how long after I'm a student could I possibly get a deployment? Well, it depends. So if you go to the 38th in this scenario and you hit the deployment cycle correctly, you get your MQT figured out, you get on a team, you get your basic qualifications, you have enough time. I, I understand the, uh, the feeling from every new student is like, I want to go downrange right away. No, dude, you need to get your house set up. You probably need to get your family set up. You probably need some sort of life that is a baseline because you need to have that stuff set up before you go, but you can go down range pretty quickly. It can definitely be within six months of you getting there, six months, eight months of you getting there almost always within a year. 
granted the deployments are slowing down a little bit and it might not be the combat deployment that you're hoping for. It might, you might be sitting alert somewhere or going to Africa and doing the FID mission or, or some of this other stuff. But, um, there's a distinct possibility that you can go pretty quickly, especially from, from the rescue side of the house. But the name of the game at the rescue units, when you get out of school is going to be, get your five level, get to that next level. Um, and then the biggest hurdle inside of kind of that upgrade process is when you're going to become what we call an element leader or a fixed wing, or I'm sorry, a, a rotary wing team leader, right? So it's a skill position. It used to be, you had to be an element leader to be a five level, like to get to that next level. I was like the last line item that you did, but they actually, the crew did something really, really smart. And they took those two things away from one another. So you can upgrade and get your five level. That means you can do all of those items on that menu that you had to do in order to get to your next skill level. And by the way, you need this to promote. You can't just be a three level your entire life. Like if you want to be an E5, you have to be able to get your five level. Got to have that extra pay, my guy. Um, you have to be able to progress to five level. Well, element leader is a skill position and it's a leadership position and it has a whole upgrade attached to it. It takes about four months. So you have to get the upgrade done in 120 days. You're essentially able then to lead a two ship of helicopters and the teams associated with those helicopters or a smaller tactical element. So it makes you an element leader inside uh, of the rescue community. That's a pretty big deal. Um, we talk about it all the time, but we give responsibility way lower down the rank than a lot of the other special operations forces. So we're talking about an E4 junior E5 being able to lead a small special operations team. Nobody else does that. And we're talking about six, six people, six men. That's a pretty big deal. Um, so the, the upgrade is intense. It is leadership driven. Um, so you have to be nominated for it. You have to show that you actually can make the upgrade and you can fail it. Most importantly, it's not a given. If you're not ready to be an element leader, you won't be an element leader. You'll be a five level and you can be a PJ. You can even have a couple deployments under your belt. But if you're not ready to lead those teams and step up in that leadership position, you won't go there. So, But it's one um, of the reasons why like upgrade is not just promotion based. It's, it's a way that we can um, get you the training that you need, get you the confidence and the competence that you need to be able to do things in training in combat in whatever situation you possibly be. It's, it's a way that we can just go, okay, we've seen this. We know that this person is trained to a certain level and then they can go do their thing. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to hold your hand. We don't have to, um, you know, continuously check on you. It's just, okay, this person can go out and execute this mission at this level. Right on go. It's, you know, somebody's, somebody's all grown up and left, left the house kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, you gotta, you gotta go fly baby bird. But, but it is, it, it is an insane, like you talked about it being a menu of, of different items. Um, like it is a good thing that they, they separated those things. Cause we had a lot of folks that, um, based off of their assignment, because so for example, like folks in JBLM and Herbert field, and probably Mildenhall. Mildenhall's got the weather issue sometimes, but mm -hmm. just because they have assets, they have tilt rotor and rotor wing assets right there in house that they can just, you know, do things with. And I know that there's other, other entities and stuff like that. I'm just making a baseline here, but um, 
Sometimes you deal with weather. Sometimes you deal with range issues. Sometimes, you know, overseas you'll deal with quiet hours, like in, like in Germany and stuff, there's quiet hours. Um, there's just, there's different challenges. And when you, you kind of have this blanket requirement for, for a career field, some locations get their upgrades earlier. Some don't, some struggle with it. It's just a, it's a thing. And then there were, there were, I remember PJs being three levels for, forever yeah it would just take years to get their upgrades yeah um, well i mean for me i i actually needed a waiver so this is back in i mean this had to be 2000 2009 2010 cross trainees have a lesser amount of time so while fresh out of school uh for first term airmen you have two years it's a 24 month upgrade process well it's only 12 if you're a cross trainee they expect you to get that done and that's nearly impossible well i ended up needing a waiver because the one thing that I needed to do was a tethered duck, right? So you're basically folding a boat up and then you're deploying it from an aircraft, from a, 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 a rotary wing aircraft. It could be a 60 or a 47. And you, there's a whole process to it. There's a way to tie it in. There's a way to deploy it, blah, blah, blah. Well, when we were on England, for whatever reason, we didn't have any crews that were certified in water. So I couldn't even get a helicopter to drop this boat. And we tried over and over again. We even went to you know, Nellis to try to get it done and, and all this other stuff. Well, my time ended up expiring. So that's how long it took me. I, I ended up needing an, an initial waiver. I didn't get that last line item figured out. So I was a five level and they let me continue in my progression, but they basically had to waiver it so that I could get my five level. And then I had to go in England. It was one of my first training events, or I'm sorry, in Vegas. It was one of my first training events was doing this T-duck to get officially blessed off on the five level. So we dealt with that a lot. You know, it was always a bottleneck and especially when you had element leader on the end of it. So basically what you used to do is you'd get your night, your like 99% done in all of your upgrade items. And then you would enter into your element leader upgrade training. And then that was another four months. So you had to get everything done with enough time to get that element leader upgrade, to get everything completely signed off, then get your paperwork in, then get blessed off by the training manager, then get your 2096 filed with S1 and then get your A1 and then get it back and yada, yada, yada. So it was tough. Um, it was tough. So we also haven't mentioned other schools. So people ask us all the time, hey, you know, what schools am I going to be able to get to go to? You're going to get to go to a ton of schools, but they may not um, actually work for your upgrade. So when people hit us up, they're like, well, I want to be a sniper and I want to go to a driving school and I want to go to this school. And it's like six months long. You, you have to prioritize those schools. If you go to a school that takes six months to graduate and there's a bunch of them out there that take, you know, four, four months, three months to graduate, that's three months. It's out of your upgrade. Right. So you might have to be like, oh, this is a really cool school and there's a spot for it, but I'm not ready to go to the school yet, number one. Or number two, I have other things to do. Like you have to get your basic stuff done before you start going and doing this cool stuff. So we talk about schools like Sniper, you know, uh, PJs are going to be able to go to advanced medical schools, advanced, you know, rope rescue schools. If you can get on those team trips and it's, you know, two weeks here, two weeks there, and you're getting other line items knocked out while you're there, awesome. But if not, you're not going to be ready to take those schools yet. And you have to you have to build all the way up. People think that as soon as you get on team, you know, as a PJ, you're just like, oh, OK, tight. I'm going to be able to go. to. I'm going to learn how to be a dog handler. I'm going to go be a sniper. I'm going to go do all these other things. That's not necessarily the case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I can appreciate the ambition. Like, that's awesome. But, uh, right. you know, hey, the, the biggest ones that uh, I think you see at least like I. 
like you'll hit the swift water rescues, the confined mm-hmm. space, you know, the, your Rocos and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think the big one that a lot of people chase is the tandem. Being able yeah. To tandem and equipment. That's a, that's a big one. Yep. And, uh, I, I was, uh, I neglected to mention it yesterday. We actually, so it used to be uh Roco. It's a confined space rescue course. Now there's a different contract owner that owns it. Um, amazing course. We actually just throw that right at the end. When you graduate the pipeline, it's actually done at Kirtland in the two weeks following. So before you PCS to your unit, you just stick around at Kirtland as a graduate. So you're a full fledged PJ, you're a, a three level, um, but you're doing the confined space course down at Kirtland. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty efficient way to do it actually. So then you show up to your unit, you've already got confined space and all of those line items knocked out. Um, the only other thing that I'll mention here is that uh, like, I want to say 40% of your upgrade items are knowledge based. So this is way too geeky to get into because it's just an Air Force training thing. But there are items that you have to perform, like the medical evaluation we talked about. You have to perform some things in front of somebody and it could be simulated, right? Like you obviously, we're not going to injure a person and have you fix the person. So it can be a uh, simulated person or a mannequin. In some cases, uh, virtual reality, which we're using now. But some of these things are knowledge based. So it's no kidding. You have to be able to explain to your supervisor a tactic, a technique, a procedure, a theory, something, you have to be able to explain that to a given level. And usually with a young three level, the level is really not that high. I tell you all of this to tell you that your upgrade is in your hands. If you want to get this thing done, you can get the upgrade done in a year. You can get the upgrade done in eight months. I can tell you a hundred percent, you can do it. You have to hit a whole bunch of training items all the time. You have to be paying attention to what the whole unit is doing, not just the dudes in your team room. Cause you're like, Oh, there's a jump over here. I need a static line jump. Oh, these guys are going out on the mountain. I bet I can get a couple of upgrade items done here. Oh, I bet I can go over to the Intel shop and they can teach me what I need to know about ISR so that I can get these done. The upgrade is in your hands. You and your supervisor work together as a team to get this stuff done. But like 40% of it is just knowledge. 40% of it is you studying, going home, reading books, going to Intel, going to these places and, and understanding the manuals and going back to your supervisor going, hey, I'm ready to tell you about map and compass. Like I can tell you what a one to 50 is. I can tell you what a one to 200 is. I can tell you how to orient the map. All of these things that I, I can just explain to you and get signed off in your book. That's totally on you. When you see guys that go for I've seen guys just in like 40 months of upgrade training and you sit down with them. You're like, what are you doing? Like, you're not waiting on one school. You're look at all these knowledge items that are just sitting here. Like you could just study and tell me these things and we could get you signed off. And they're always just like, oh yeah, well, they've always got a bad excuse. That's, that's always terrible. But, um, I think that's it for PJs at the rescue units. I don't, I don't know what uh, you've supervised a bunch of PJs at a bunch of different places. So I don't, I don't know what kind of you see from the outside in of, you know, PJs at that first unit. Well, I mean, it, it kind of always goes back to, it, it's very similar to what you talked about. And, and it's the same with, you know, controllers, SR tech pieces, you know, we've all got these team rooms and we've, and, and they're fun to be in. That's got a, you know, good environment and that kind of stuff. You've got people working on different things all through there, you know, planning trips, um, doing logistics coordination for shooting schools, you know, talking about deployment, stuff like that. But inevitably there is some downtime to where you don't necessarily need to be, you know, surfing social media or whatever, you know, checking out Amazon or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So that is where those knowledge-based things get in. That is where that, hey, let me pick up a radio and let me teach right. a PJ. Or why not, as a PJ, I grab a controller or a tag P or whoever, and hey, let's do some some needle sticks or needle decompressions. Um, let's let's actually put on a tourniquet the right way. You know, all things that we have all been trained to, but sometimes those skills atrophy, or there's a new type of tourniquet that's out. Or there's a new way to needle D somebody, you know? So it's, it's just looking for opportunity instead of just sitting around, just go get better. Even if it's like, you know what? I'm going to get a second workout in the gym. Don't just sit on your ass. Like right. do things. So there's there's nothing better. worse than walking into a team room and everybody's on their computer. Like you don't need that computer, dude. Just go out, get, I would rather, I would rather see you get up, put your rock on and go for a walk than I would you staring, waiting for the next dumb email to come in because there's, it's an endless supply of dumb emails. Like you don't need to know that there's a chili cook off happening somewhere else on base. You know what I mean? Like go train, go tie ropes. Yeah. And then as somebody who sends out a lot of emails that I try not to, <laughs> um, yeah, this that one hurts your feelings. Like yeah. <laughs> that, that one gets you. Believe me. I, 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 I don't want to be behind the computer. <laughs> Right, right, right. All right. So that kind of covers, uh, you know, that kind of covers the rescue units. And keep in mind, this is going to be different. You know, we we kind of hit it in in deep dive part one of of the PJ pipeline. But each individual rescue unit, even even the rescue units, are going to have you know different missions. And then you start mixing in the guard and the reserve there, and they might have the same mission. They might even be deploying to the same spot because the guard and the reserve do take deployments, so they do take you know, certain rotations throughout the years, they'll go take certain locations for a certain amount of time. Even, uh, you know, the differences between those two units can be vast. It can be different. You know, the Alaska guys have a whole different set of skills that they call their Alaska skills. You know, you got to be good at PJ stuff, but you got to, you got to be good at Alaska stuff too. So you got to be good on skis. You got to be good in the cold. Obviously you got to be good in the water. You got to be good in the back country. Like those are a whole, that's a whole different set of skills. So, you know, if you contrast that with, you know, being in San Jose, California, the Moffat guys and the Alaska guys, they might have the same mission. They might be going to the same place in the same year, but their training is going to look remarkably different for what they focus on. And, uh, you know, that only gets bigger as we go to the two series units and we go to AFSOC because of the different mission sets. Um, so peaches I'll, I'll hit you. So we got a young controller. We already went through the pipeline. We're out of STTS. They're a full-fledged combat controller. It's a little bit different for them getting out of STTS. If everything works the way that it's supposed to, they should get out of STTS, a five-level. So where PJs graduate their pipeline at three-level, and then their job is to upgrade to five. Controllers, a little bit different. They graduate STTS, a five-level, if everything goes well, and then they get to the unit. What does their first year look like? Uh, it's it's actually very similar to PJs because you're you're still – you enter a clock – Right. Uh, you've got your three levels, five levels, seven levels, and then on. But it, it is still the name of the game is upgrade, upgrade in between deployments. And guess what? You, even on a deployment, you can still work on on items to, to upgrade. But mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's getting out to drop zones, landing zones, uh, helo landing zones. It's doing surveys. It's doing air travel control. Uh, a lot of times it is going to your initial joint terminal attack controller course to get, you know, your, your special operations terminal attack controller course to get that qualification. And they're working through those upgrades. Um, it is, you know, your, 
I'm going to say it, the shoot, move, communicate. It's all things like that, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. going to shooting schools, up your game in that. It's receiving medical training, not not just, you know, TCCC, which I'm not going to try and do. It's tactical casualty <laughs> care course, I think is what it is. But um, Tactical combat casualty care. There we go. That's, the, that's that third C. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's getting that because... And why is it important for a controller or SR or TACP or whatever to learn medical? Like, what the hell? We got a PJ, right? Well, it's because what happens if that PJ or those PJs go down? Mm-hmm. Then somebody's got to take care of them. And somebody's, you know, there's a good chance that there's some other folks that are wounded too. So it's getting that security. It's getting that medical treatment uh, because the PJ can't necessarily help himself or the 18 Delta can't help themselves. So everybody's got to be able to take care of themselves. That's why we do TCCC and medical stuff. So yeah. it's all getting things like that. And it's, it's also, um, yeah, okay, by this time you've been in the Air Force for, at the end of SCTS, we'll just call it three years, three mm-hmm. and a half years maybe. You still haven't really been in the real Air Force. You've been in training the entire time. You've been a student the entire yeah. time. You haven't had to lead anybody. You've written yeah. zero EPRs. <laughs> you have just taken – you have showed Which up on amazing. time. Yeah, I know, right? You've showed up on time. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. Going back. I, I got to be honest no with you. idea. Going back. So, you know, being a regular Air Force dude and then going back into the pipeline and being uh, just a student – I was like, oh, this is great. I was writing on like five people by the time that I was, you know, and we had a small squadron. Like it's nothing like, you know, there's some security forces, you know, E5 and E6s out there that are writing on like 20 people. Man, you as a student in the pipeline, you know, combat control, SR, PJ across the board, you're not in the real Air Force. You're if you wear the right clothes and you show up at the right time and you have the right things in your bag. People are like, oh, that's a pretty squared away guy. That is that is the the height of expectation is you show up on time. (laughs) You are you. Hey, man, you're an outstanding airman. You showed up with all the right things in your bag and you were wearing the right outfit. Man, you're pretty good. (laughs) Get out of here. That's it's you know, it's it's things like um, like we we do advanced communication courses in terms of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because. These radios now, they are no longer just a radio. They are a computer. You know, yep. and, you, know you could say the same thing about phones and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. these, these radios are full up computers and they, they are capable of some incredible things and incredible, um, modes of communication and stuff like that, that mm-hmm. we are advancing to that are, we are going to rely on later on, uh, once there's jamming and that kind of stuff. So like, whether you go someplace to learn that or whether we bring in contractors to help teach you, because, you know, as an active duty guy, I am limited to what I've been taught. Whereas if we have somebody come in that is the expert in that field, they can teach us to a whole higher level. So yeah. doing things like that, going out and supporting exercises that have to do with close air support, um, shooting, foreign internal defense, um, and some of these are just internal exercises in terms of, you know, just on base or, or within the air force. Some of them are joint exercises or combined exercises that have different nations in them. So like, it's all things like that. And you're like, well, what could I possibly be doing if I'm not deploying? Dude, a lot. Yeah. We well, and first of all, you're be busy. 
Yeah, you're always in cycle, right? So you're always in, we, we've briefed it before, we've talked about it, but the AFSO 4 gen, so the Air Force Special Operation Force Generation Cycle, bam, crushed it. Um, you, it's a 24-month cycle. You're always in a phase, right? So when you when you get there as a combat controller, you show up to the, your two series unit, you know, whether it be here or stateside and, you know, combat controllers are not at the rescue units right now. They're only in, in ST. They're only in AFSOC. So you show up to that first unit, the 2-1, the 2-2, two, two, the 2-3, two, the 2-6. You might go overseas, but let's just call it, you know, let's say you're going to go to the 2-6 main cannon. You are immediately on a 24-month training cycle. It just depends on where you show up. So the first one that we go through is individual. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You're working on individual skills, shoot, move, communicate, upgrades. This is when you're going to like schools. This is where you're going to like the Air Force is going to say that you got to go to ALS, Airman Leadership School. You don't get out of it just because you're a controller doesn't mean you don't need to know how to do Air Force stuff. I had a very uh, a good friend of mine, uh, D, who is a, a CAG sergeant major, and he uh, he's actually an honorary PJ. So we gave him uh, his honorary beret during my time at the schoolhouse. An awesome dude. He had something like 18 deployments as, uh, as a CAG assaulter. Jeez. And he used to say, yeah, I know, you know, what's funny too, is like, <laughs> he would always correct you, but never to like, we, cause we would always joke. We'd be like, yeah, D's killed like thousands of people. He's deployed a million times. He's like, okay, so first of all, I've only deployed 18 times. And he would always like correct oh you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'd always laugh at that. Uh, he, he'd always say really, really funny stuff too. Like, Hey, he was notorious. Uh, he had this very distinct way of speaking. So people imitate him a lot. And I won't do that now, but he used to talk about, you know, being in, in, uh, in CQC, he'd be like, there's a reason why you guys don't run in the house. And, and everybody like, Oh, Mr. D why? And he'd be like, well, because you guys are bad at CQC. There's no reason to rush to your death. You might as well walk and spend the rest of your life on that walk. It's hilarious. But, uh, yeah, but D uh, was notorious for saying he's like no matter how cool you are he's like i was a cag sergeant major with 18 deployments and guess what i still had to do army stuff i still had to i still had to sign up for uniforms i still had to take cbts i still had to there was i had to go to schools i had to go to leadership courses i had to shave my face there's a, you know there's a million things and it's it's the exact same for us right so in that individual phase of training you're going to be knocking out all of those individual skills so sometimes it's fun schools, like you're going to go to Jumpmaster or you get to go to Tandem or you get to go to those advanced shooting schools inside of the individual phase, right? You get done with the individual phase and then you should have everything rehacked, all of your currencies, all of those things that you need to be green on, which is a million things. We go by what's called the storm now, the special tactics operator re uh, readiness message essentially is a whole menu of things that you have to be green on to go train, right? Out of the individual phase, you should be green on all of those things. And then you're going to move in to the unit phase. The unit phase is exactly what it sounds like. Now, everybody's green. Everybody has individual skills. And now we're going to work as a unit, meaning inside of your flight, inside of your team, your STT. So the flights break down into special tactics teams, right? And there's four teams for both flights for a healthy unit. If we have that many people, many units don't, but that's the way that it's supposed to look is four and four. And those teams have individual focuses. So you start working with your team. Maybe you're the free fall team. So you're going to work with your team, not just on being a jump master, not just being a tandem master, but you're going to work on hey ho, and you're going to fly together as a team. And your goal is to land within 10 meters of each other within 10 seconds of the first person hitting the ground so that you can no kidding jump together as a team. If you're the mountain team, guess what you're going to go do? 
You're going to go spend a ton of time on the mountain and you're going to walk together as a team and you're going to learn how to employ those skills that you got in individual phase as a team. Okay. And we're always focused on the deployment, right? You get out of the unit phase. Guess what's next? Joint collective. What does that sound like? It sounds like now you're taking your team that has all these skills and now you're integrating with other teams. If you're, if you're going to deploy to go downrange and do global access, foreign internal defense, and then provide a special tactics team for personnel recovery, if that happens, then that's how you're going to train. And that's the, the unit that you're going to go out. Maybe you're getting extra courses in how to teach folks to teach them foreign internal defense. Maybe you're getting extra courses in some new ways to do, uh, you know, airfield um, surveys and, and you're figuring out the, the most efficient way to get all these things done. That's what you're doing in joint collective. You're working with those other teams. If you're going to go deploy with a Ranger battalion or with the Marines or with the army, and you're going to be sharing a space and sharing a mission with them, this is where you go do those J sets, those joint combined exchange training events. Um, where you start to work with your partner forces. That's all done in joint collective, right? So we've got individual, we've got unit, we've got joint collective, and then we've got committed. And that's the deployment, right? Whatever it is, wherever in the world that you're going to do, uh, whatever it is that you're going to do, this is where you go do it, right? And that's the, the whole 18 months prior to this, you've been preparing yourself for that six months of essentially when you go deploy. And it can be anywhere in the world. And oh, by the way, any time in this, there's somebody on alert. So in one of the phases, you're actually on alert for stuff that happens in the world and taskings. And it will. There will be things that happen. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's just humanitarian stuff. Yeah. Like lost tomatoes. hikers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's there's never ending humanitarian stuff stateside. Or overseas, you know, I, I remember we sent folks over to Pakistan after the earthquake. I mean, that was a long time ago. The dudes on Kadena, on Okinawa, mm -hmm. whenever that tsunami and the uh, that earthquake the, happened. I mean, yeah, the Fu and the Fukushima uh, yeah. nuclear disaster. The, Dude, the ST on teams their home, on their home turf. Like, uh -huh. all right, time time to get to work. I mean, even the guys out of Hervey at the twenty third, you know, after they went down to Puerto Rico. To mm -hmm. do work they went they f flew in a cv-22 straight over to panama city over to tyndall to, mm -hmm. to open up the airfield and, and help people out i mean it's you are always going to be doing something and it sounds crazy too when you think about it you're like there's no way i could possibly be training all the time you know deploying helping out humanitarian going to school but i promise you it, you are busy um yeah one th one thing that i wanted to hit just uh I guess for, for my own clarification or for folks out there is that um, even though there are certain STTs or flights or whatever you want to call them within a special tactics unit that are focusing on jumping, diving, mountaineering, that doesn't mean that the others aren't doing that same thing. It just means that, okay, this one particular, you know, STT is solely focused on, um, they are doing other things, but like they are deemed as, the ones that are going that are the experts in that the other teams yeah. are jumping the other teams are diving and mm -hmm. doing things in the mountains and that kind of stuff but like there's one that that is that is their expertise kind of thing right yep and b is so when when we had troops and not not you know flights like my troop was the pr troop 
So we were PJ heavy. We had a crow that was, uh, you know, the officer that was in charge of that, you know, that troop. And we focused on PR stuff because we were the ones that we were going to get called, you know, PR. We were not the ones that were focusing on, you know, hey ho offset infill methods because that that takes a lot of time to train to. Like think about any other specialty. It's you know you have specialty teams inside of a unit. Everybody maintains a baseline. Everybody can hop in to other people's stuff. But when you need a specific tool, like a specific person or team that's trained to that standard, you have to let them specialize in that training. So that's exactly how we do it. So you can find yourself on you know a jump team JBLM. So uh, the two two and the two three maintain a closed circuit capability uh, for diving. That's really hard to train to just having the equipment and getting the swims that you need and, and doing it on, you know, and, you know, shout out to the dive master up here. That's been no kidding, fixing this problem for two straight years, but that's how, you know, that, that works out is you, you have specialized teams that are training in this and staring at that problem the entire time. So. Oh, Mr. Phillips. Oh, there Bill. The old master <laughs> diver. Oh, Bill. Um, so that's kind of the first year for, for control. Special reconnaissance is doing the same thing. Y'all. So special reconnaissance has their, you know, combat control has their own. It's called the CFETP career field education and training plan. Every one of us has a distinctive CFETP. It has differing numbers of things and differing progressions and how you have to go about them. And they, you know, they're prioritized in a different way, but special reconnaissance is doing the exact same thing. So not only are they focusing on their individual stuff, but they're, they're learning how to integrate into the teams as well. Cause just like Peach has said, you might not have a special reconnaissance guy everywhere all the time. You might not have a PJ everywhere all the time. You might not even have a controller everywhere all the time. So PJs have to learn how to do airfield stuff. Controllers have to learn how to do medical stuff. SR has to learn how to do controller stuff and radio stuff and TACP the same way. You know, you have to crossload not only get not um, gear, like not only gear equipment and understand what the other guy's carrying, but you have to know how to do their job, at least to some extent, because there's going to be a time where you look around and you're like, crap, I don't have a controller and I got to get this 117 up or I got to get this. I got to get these comms up. Yep. Um, it's not good enough to be like, well, I don't know. I'm a PJ. <laughs> I guess oh, we don't well. have. I, oh, well, I guess we don't have SATCOM. <laughs> I guess that plane's not coming in to pick us up. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, exactly. Hey, this guy, this guy's bleeding, but I'm a special reconnaissance guy, so I can look at him with this drone, but I can't really do anything about it. Like, that's not going to work, my guy. You're going to have to go ahead and get hands on with that patient. <laughs> I don't have blood, though. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 well, it, you, that always cracks me up, too, is when people will, and they, they don't know what they don't know, right? But they're like, well, like, I'm a, what do you do with a special reconnaissance guy if it's not a special reconnaissance mission? What are you talking about? What? <laughs> okay. He's going to be. What does an, yeah. an ODA do if they happen to have a, an attached 11 Bravo? Right. Yeah, He's exactly. A shooter one. Right. But, I mean, like, what do I do? Do I just pull security? I don't know that that would be, that would seem like a waste of three years of training to just pull <laughs> security. Like I can have, I can have any 11 Bravo do that. Like why we, I would assume that you would learn how, I don't know, maybe grab a heavy weapon. Uh, maybe, go to sniper school and, and provide overwatch, maybe, maybe engage in a meaningful fashion. And again, it's, they don't know what they don't know, but it's the funniest thing to just be like, well, what do PJs do on global access? Uh, a million things help with mission planning, provide security, make sure that if a mass casualty happens, they're there to help. 
I don't man a DCP and help them get the airfield done faster? Do you think we just sit there and wait for stuff to happen, or how do, how do you think that works? And and don't and don't think for the folks out there, don't think that every single um, scenario or every single training event is some this massive thing that you would see in movies or or TV. A lot of some of it is for sure. Mm-hmm. Some of it is, mm-hmm. but like you know when Aaron, when you talk about hey hey put. You know, if you're not doing anything, grab somebody and start sticking needles or start, you know, do just a, a, even a small medical scenario. It could just be in the team room and, and something real simple. There doesn't even have to be moulage. It's just, okay, I've got an IFAC kit or what's, you know, a small medical kit that is for everybody, you know, each individual. Mm-hmm. And, and you just start doing a scenario and it, and it could take five, 10 minutes. And then it's a reset and like, okay, well, okay, what if somebody came through that door and now it's a gunshot versus, um, you know, a grenade or, or something like that. So you could just, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be some crazy intricate with moulage and, you know, planes flying over. It could just be something real simple. And that way you can knock out iterations. I mean, you talked about the virtual reality thing. Um, I, I know some of the medical folks are using that, but for me, that's more beneficial for me as a controller than it is a PJ, mm-hmm. in my opinion, just because you oh, yeah. can, whether it's you or whether it's one of the docs can watch on a, on a TV screen or a computer screen, watch my hand movement, what I'm doing. And I can just talk through. And instead of just talking about it, I can actually do it with the, the virtual reality. Yeah. Open and, the bag, I, grab the medicine, know what's next, like for algorithm stuff, like for processing a checklist. That is money. It's never going to replace patient contact, right? But for your your point, man, TCCC is a pretty defined step. Like it is a step-by-step process. And to have a controller just be able to go through and be like, okay, massive hemorrhage. I'm going to grab this tourniquet. I'm going to put the tourniquet on the proper thing. Now I go to A and okay, I can see this person in my headset, my Oculus. Mm -hmm. I can see the airway is not clear. So I know I have to do something for their airway. It's highly useful. And that, and that patient on that virtual reality is, is talking to me or is I can, I can get, uh, feedback from him versus, you know, a doctor on the other end going, okay, his left leg's bleeding out. You put a tourniquet on it. Okay. Is it still bleeding? I don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Let me tighten it up. Exactly. Whereas at least, at least on the virtual reality, it's like, okay, I, I know I got it because I can see it. You know, my favorite is when there's actual patients involved and I've had team members like have their hands on a living, breathing patient. And look at me and go, is the patient breathing? And I look at them and go, I don't know. Are they breathing? Treat the patient. <laughs> like, that's the, that's uh, just training scar yeah. tissue. Is all that oh, is. it is. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that we used to do for, for training, and, and you're totally right, that hip pocket training can be done at any time. Every room has a whiteboard in it. There'd be times where I walk out. And I, usually it's because I catch the dude slipping, right? Like I'm trying to write 40 EPRs and these knuckleheads are in here talking about conspiracy theories and talking about whatever it is Dolphins. we talk about in the team. Yeah, AI and dolphins or whatever the shit Trent talks about. But it's usually usually when they would annoy me, I would walk out in the team room and I would just get a whiteboard and I would erase a little part of it. And then I would just write up a scenario and I'd be like, mission planning, go. You know, I would I would just draw a compound. I would draw a simple scenario and I'd be like, all right, you have what you have. I want you to plan this mission, go. And I would make them go through the troop leading procedures make them go all the way through mission planning. And then they would brief their plan. They had five minutes. I'd be like, you're the team leader. You're the team sergeant go. And that is, that is super valuable because it's just, you can wipe, set up an ambush. Yep. Draw me, you know, rope systems. You don't even need ropes. 
to train this stuff. They know the theory. So I'm like, okay, draw and draw me a rope system and tell me how we're going to lift this up and tell me how we're going to get a team all the way up to this scenario. And they would have to draw. They would draw from here's my anchor. Here's this specific piece of equipment. Here's the knot that I'm going to tie. Here's the throw that I'm going to have. Here's how I haul it. You can do all of that on a whiteboard. And that training is super valuable because it keeps you in the fight. And then when other people, when other AFSCs are watching the PJ draw this rope system inside of this mission planning, everybody's learning from that. So that then when you get out on the X, you guys have already done hundreds of reps kind of in your head. Um, you know, it's funny talking about training scars and, you know, stuff that we do that, that really harms us in training. That's how you get away from that is you break yourself of those scars. Be like, no, actually do it. Like actually draw it up there and draw each piece of equipment and explain to me step by step by step how it is that we're going to do it. Um, and the more different ways that you train, the less training scars that you have, because you're constantly engaged in the training. You're not just finger drilling um, the the process over and over again. It's funny. I, I remember my first or at least my my first recognition of a training scar. And mm -hmm. it was um, so to, to help paint the picture the a normal cast mission right a close air support mission uh training is anywhere between 45 minutes and two hours and it, it really depends on what platform you have you know you've got f-16s or whatever that have less play time or less fuel or maybe they just burn at a higher rate they're going to be around the 45 minutes you have you know a-10s f-15s with extra tanks you know, that they're going to give you an hour and a half, two hours. Depends. There's a lot of stuff involved that. Anyway. Sure. So yeah. no more than two hours usually for a cast mission. And I remember the kind of first like heavy, heavy firefight I got in where I was calling a lot of cast and I get two hours into it. And I'm like, well, you know, they, they checked out and it was just such a, a force of habit where I'm like, okay, well, cool. That was a good cast mission. <laughs> oh, and then there's bullets flying. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're still in a fight. And then there's more oh, yeah. checking in. <laughs> that's what a training scar is. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the same. Yeah. It's, you can't. It's the same thing with patient happen. care. Yeah. It's the same thing with patient care, right? Like usually, you know, in the schoolhouse, you're treating a patient until it's logical conclusion. But that logical conclusion is just the end of a checklist that you're being evaluated on. I remember getting to the end of it, like one of the first patients I treated like for real, for real. And I get to the end. I'm just like, okay, cool. I had that patient for another two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was like, uh, what do I do now? I guess I, I guess I just pay attention to them and hope they don't die. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was, and, it was pretty funny. That, that what's cool is that, um, that kind of, and I know we're, we're going on a tangent now, but yeah, the, that's the whole the, point. That's why we have the podcast, you know? Yeah. The technology <laughs> that's, out there to, to help with that prolonged care. It's not necessarily. So for the folks out there, there are what's called, you know, your little Android phones, right? Your smartphones. There are different programs that are out there are different apps that we use, you know, for JTAX, you know, it's, it's commonly referred to as ATAC or uh, Android tactical assault kit PJs. There, there is one for medical and it's, it's very similar to that, but I can't remember what the acronym is. It's called BATDOC. 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 So, and it, it actually feeds into your ATAC for it. Right. Like, yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's so, pretty good. So think about, 
Android, and I, I would look it up because it's all open source, but it's mm-hmm. Android Tactical Assault Kit, and it's, you know, moving map, and there's icons, and you can do, create nine lines for targeting off of there, but then the bat dock, you can put these Bluetooth devices, I think it, it has to do with um the aux, aux sensors, right? Aux mm-hmm. sensor? So right. it's everything, actually. So there's a little puck, you, you can put it on your patient's chest, you can get up to 10 of them. And then when I flip my Android phone down, I can look on my chest and I can see up to 10 patients' vitals. And if one gets out of tolerance, it'll blink red. So like, no kidding, like I look at the thing on my ATAC, the patient will blink red and then I can look and the thing will actually blink and it'll, which patient it is, it'll be like, hey, uh, his heart rate isn't good or his O2 sat isn't correct or his pulse rate is, is you know, off. Mm-hmm. So again, you're not going to do that when it's, when you're trying to triage and save somebody's life. That's not what that's for. You're not going to bust out thing and like, oh, let me put this on you. I can see when you're dying. I don't need, I don't need, yeah, it's pretty apparent. Right. Yeah. But when you start talking about like, okay, well, I've got numerous patients because it's a mass casualty because X, X plane you know, crashed and I've got multiple patients and now I've got everybody stable at, at somewhat, but I'm, I'm doing prolonged care. Now I don't need to be, I can still jump around from patient to patient, but I still have situational awareness on the kind of the status of everybody. So mm-hmm. use utilizing technology like that. Um, and, and there's, that's not the only thing there's, there's a bunch of different things that, that is on the horizon or things that we are already using to help with that prolonged care. Um, you, you mentioned it in the, the part one, but PJ's carrying blood bags and mm-hmm. blood transfusions out in the field. So trying to extend that golden hour, yep. um, you know, and, and we also, and we've had folks on here before we've had, uh, Emily offer and, uh, Reagan, Reagan line. Yeah. From, from the special operations surgical teams, you know, who, who were, an incredible anesthesiologist, surgeons, uh, RNs, and, you know, therefore deploying, they aren't necessarily on target with us, but maybe if they're, but they're a, close, there's a, right. And if there's a yeah. four hour flight between, you know, the fob and the target, well, maybe they're an hour or they're, they try and get within that, that window of an hour so that they can help save somebody because yep. it, that is such a crucial period of time upon um, impact of injury or whatever they're calling yeah. it. P- PJs do not save lives. We stop people from dying. Okay. So like surgeons save lives. They, there's a colloquialism that we use, you know, bright lights and cold steel saves lives. Surgeons save lives because they actually fix the thing that is broken. I am just stopping you from dying long enough to get to that surgeon. If the surgeon is far forward, say within, I don't know, a kilometer of where we are, the forward line of troops, hold up in a building somewhere and I can get them into that surgery. That's how we actually affect the battlefield. So we're constantly looking at new pieces of equipment, new tactics, techniques, procedures. And this is across the board, you know, controllers We're you know, you guys are trying to figure out everything from LIDAR to see soil density to, you know, new ways of LPI, LPD comms, you know, SR is doing the same thing with their electromagnetic uh, war, you know, spectrum warfare stuff. You know, we're doing everything that we, you know, HF radio, you know, for over the horizon comms that aren't SATCOM enabled. Like we're trying to figure these things out day to day. So when people are like, oh, well, what, what's the day to day look like? What can you possibly be doing? Well, it can be everything from, you know, what we've already talked about. 
everything from your upgrade to your individual schools, to working with your team, to getting those advanced skills. And then when you're not doing any of that, you're thinking about the next problem. You know, you're going on, you know, a TD, sometimes you're going to get pulled in. Like you, you become a subject matter expert, right? Like if you specialize in something for long enough, you become the subject matter expert. Then the, the career field and the command itself is bringing those subject matter experts together to talk about future problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we have huge conferences where we just get together and talk about what's the next comm device? What, what's the next medical device? What's the next interrogation device that we're going to get in the hands of our SR airmen? And it's every single AFSC, you know, it's not just, it's not just the operators. It's, it's the AFE folks. It's the Intel folks. It's the geospatial Intel folks. It's, you know, every single part, the dive master talking about everything that we could possibly use to get after that future fight. So it's, it's a constant battle. It, it really is. And, and you talk about that subject matter expert, like before you know it, you are that SME and it's, yeah. it's pretty wild when they're like, Hey, do you mind coming to this weapons and tactics conference and, and solving the, helping to solve this problem? Or, Hey, you mind coming out to Nellis and, and talking about fifth gen integration and, and how you're going to do distributed command and control and stuff like that. And you're like, well, surely there's somebody else. Surely there's that. somebody else. Right. Yeah. No, they're <laughs> like, no dude, you're the SME. And you're like, yeah, oh boy, it's like it's oh like the boy. scene in Armageddon where there's like there is no room of people working on this problem. The, you are it. There is no team of guys <laughs> that's figuring this out. Like you're the adult now, and you're just like, wait, yeah, Ugh, we are in bad shape. Yeah, <laughs> get off. What is he? Get off the rocket. Get off the missile. Whatever. It get is. off the thermo. You are yeah. shooting a gun near a thermonuclear device in space. <laughs> Jeez, All uh, right. What else we got to hit on part two? I know we kind of went off on a tangent there. Yeah, well, I, I think that's it, right? Like, you know, the people people want black and white answers, and there's really not. It's you're going to do whatever you know the mission takes. You know, everybody, you know, working out of out of you know Nellis and DM thought that everything was going fine in August of 21, and then lo and behold, you know those those dudes got forward deployed to go handle the HKIA scenario. We talked to Chris mm -hmm. and Sean um, during that that episode and you know st is doing crazy things that you would never think of right like people are always like oh well they're going to send the pjs on the humanitarian mission no you might have like one or two pjs that are running an entire you know airfield that had an earthquake hit it like in haiti you know there was there's a million things that you can you can do and it's more principally based people want to know exactly you know what's the day-to-day -day like what's it going to be you know from from day in day out we, we can tell you kind of what it looks like but there's no telling, you know, you have a world, a world superpower invades another country. And then you're looking at a completely different mission set. You know, I love using, I think Justin Perrin is the first time I heard this, but I love using this, you know, this kind of analogy, but on September 10th of 2001, people didn't know where Afghanistan was and nobody was doing horseback riding lessons, you know, but later in September of 2001, you had teams that were on horseback riding around in Afghanistan, learning how to efficiently and effectively drop bombs as fast as they possibly could. And the entire career fields, the entire, really the air force pivoted to a completely new mission set. And, you know, PJs, you know, had always said, Oh yeah, well, if, you know, if a seal team gets in trouble, yeah, of course we're going to go behind enemy lines and, you know, go get them. That's a very famous picture of chief Caleb Etheridge, you know, when, when the seals dial nine one one PJs answer, well, we weren't really like putting uh, outside of the, you know, the tier one unit, 
we weren't really like putting PJs on the ground with teams as a standard. That changed in GWAT. Yeah, exactly. You were sitting reactive CSAR. No more. That changed in GWAT. So we can't tell you what the future is going to look like. We can tell you kind of what to expect, but it's really a choose your own adventure. And it's going to depend on what the world's doing and what your unit's doing. And, you know, a lot of timing plays into it, but it's, it's, it's exciting. That's fun. You never know what's going to happen. So that's cool. <laughs> it could be, it could be somewhat scary. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, these career fields, it really is, you know, uh, years and years of boredom, spice stuff with like moments of sheer terror <laughs> where, you're just training and writing EPRs and whatever else. And then you get called off and 72 hours later, you're in some far flung place on the earth and getting into a gunfight. You're like, wow, well that, boy, that escalated quickly. You know, didn't see that coming. <laughs> right. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for part two of the PJ deep dive. Um, we, again, leave a review, like subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Shoot us a DM if you have further questions. And then, I mean, like I said, we always say we appreciate you being here. And yeah. uh, the whole reason we exist is is for you. So hope you enjoyed it. We're out here. Yeah. Light. Turn on.